This is The Dog and Bone. Welcome to The Dog and Bone, a series of podcasts brought to you by Propeller Group, the specialist agency that builds profile and helps grow business for companies in media, marketing, retail and technology. I'm Martin Lote, founder of Propeller and curator of The Dog and Bone. In each episode, we invite business leaders with something to say into our kennel for a chat, and we ask them to dig up something a bit tasty for us to chew on. In this special edition of The Dog and Bone, I'm pleased to welcome into the kennel Keith Weed, the near legendary and soon to retire Chief Marketing and Communications Officer of Unilever. Multiple award winning, Keith has been at the consumer goods giant for 35 years. And in that time, he's been instrumental in a long list of industry leading initiatives, covering sustainability, breaking stereotypes and championing trust. To fire some questions at Keith on the dog and bone, I've invited two people who are a little bit less advanced in their marketing careers, but who have already achieved a lot. Hannah Payne is a senior brand manager at McDonald's, and she won the coveted accolade of Young Leader of the Year 2018 from the Marketing Society. Crystal Isinger is in strategy and operations at Google UK in Ireland, and she recently became one of the Marketing Academy Scholars of the Year. And to round off our lineup, we have Robin White as moderator for our session. He's the W in WCRS and now president of parent company Engine. A well-known raconteur and bon viveur, Robin is a colourful figure and the founder of the Ideas Foundation, which encourages young talent into the creative business. And Robin started things off. I'm really looking forward to our conversation because there's two of the rising stars of the marketing industry and then one of the superstars who for 35 years has been showing us all how to do it. So, Keith, starting with you, I've got a couple of questions before I slink into the background. Your lasting legacy... What do you would you like to be remembered for of, of a whole range of things you've done for Unilever? Um, so how marvellous to be here with you. And I'm sure we're going to learn a lot from uh, our two uh, marketing stars here. But what would I want? I don't know. Isn't that, it's a tricky question, but one probably I should think about now as I'm sort of about to uh, leave Unilever in about six weeks. So uh, I think I should probably, if I look at my most recent role as the Chief Marketing Communications Officer, which has a combination of being the Chief Marketing Officer, but I also run sustainability, social and environmental sustainability and communications, internal, external communications. I think the thing that we have proved the case for the business case for sustainability, I think the fact that in the last nine years, Unilever's sales have grown every year, um, our profits have grown every year, we've grown ahead of the competition, ahead of the market. And we've done that by uh, fundamentally building purpose into our brands and social environmental sustainability into our business. We're on the journey, still got more to do, uh, but I think Unilever is well recognised for the work it does in that area. So proving the case for sustainable living. Well, I think that's one thing I would pick. But the other thing I'd just like to ask you about before I pass the baton uh, to Hannah is I think the way you shifted the whole uh, culture, the marketing culture from the world of logic to the world of magic was really quite extraordinary, actually, for how enormous a uh, tanker like Unilever managed to cr- complete that manoeuvre. Can you just say a couple of things about what were the challenges of bringing yes. magic to the world that had previously been driven by logic? Yes, I think, um, actually, it's quite an ex- extraordinary journey, I suppose, from a, a very logic into more magic, and actually now magic and logic. And the magic is uh, a combination of creativity, 
in the advertising, of course, and that's the bit we all remember. But that creativity has to go back into um, the positioning and and the product design and the whole program. So I think creativity is an unlock for growth, and I put creativity and growth very close together. But having said that, what we've seen in the recent years is actually the marriage of, of both. And, and more than ever, uh, marketers can now use logic, as in data, to not just do better targeting, which is, in fact, what most of us are doing right now, which is actually, in some ways, a quite dull but efficient use of data. But I think we're going to get data that's going to actually lead us to another leap in creativity, uh, understanding people better, actually tailoring messages to uh, individuals. We're doing quite a bit of experimenting in that area. And surprise, surprise, people are more engaged when you give them something they want to see rather than just you know trying to give the same thing to everyone. So I think the journey has been from logic to magic to now magic and logic, um, sort of art and science, creativity and effectiveness. And I think it's the most exciting time to be a marketer ever. Well, I think that's true. And Hannah, as someone who's a relatively recent addition to this world, what would you like to ask? Well, um, Keith, could I start with asking you, do you think marketing still holds the same reputation it used to amongst the C-suite? I think certainly it's true in uh, a branded uh, business. I think obviously in different industries, it has different status. But in the fast moving consumer goods, we really believe in marketing. I'm sure a lot of people who do marketing uh, in other uh, industries get frustrated when they see, um, you know, with the second largest advertiser in the world, we obviously believe in advertising. I think it's up to the marketers to make themselves needed and useful to the business. One of the things I think marketers can do better than anyone else is bring the future forward and the outside in. And businesses are more lost than ever. It's very turbulent and things are changing. And with technology, it's changing even faster than ever before. A lot of businesses are really lost about where they're going and how they're going to find growth and how they're going to develop their business. So if you can get out there and understand what your customers, consumers, users uh, want um, and bring that into the business. That can make a huge difference. Trends, understanding trends. Uh, as I uh, often joke, you know, the CFO's job is to count where the money's going. Um, but what a, a CMO should be doing is finding out where the money's going to come from, where, where it's going to come from. Understand the big trends that are driving changes in consumer behavior. The other thing I think you need to do is you need to speak the language of the business. Um, and a marketer who does nothing other than sort of hang his or head uh, down saying, well, I'm not getting enough investment. No, you need to understand the whole PL um, and you need to understand what your role is as part of the team to deliver a, a growing and vibrant business. So, Crystal, as one of the newer marketing people, what awkward question would you like to throw at Keith just to get us going? Well, what kind of question do you wish that you were asked in these kind of podcasts or interviews that you haven't yet been asked? Oh, wow. Gosh. Uh, what sort of question would I like to be asked? Um, I suppose what I'd, I would uh, quite like to be asked is how does a big business like um, Unilever manage to you know, compete and, uh, and remain competitive in this, this hugely changing technological world? I mean, obviously, you know, you're from Google and, you know, in this last and it has only been really the last five years. If you look back nine years ago when I started this role, um, I went to Silicon Valley. Neither Google or Facebook or, or Twitter were at scale. Um, and we're a scale player. E every day, two and a half billion people use our products. So so that, the question I like, yeah, is how does Unilever manage to keep current? Uh, do you want me to answer that question? You can answer your own question. Can I? Yes. Oh, right, good. How generous. Can we carry on like this? Yeah. <laughs> but you can just pass it all over. You, you ask the question <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and you answer them. 
<laughs> so Keith, what would you like to speak about? Well, <laughs> how much time have you got? Um, no, I, so I think um, how do we get? So um, I'm a great believer in you need to live the space, um, and I don't think that in the time of television ads. If you had a load of marketers just listening to the radio, would they make great TV ads? No, that's obvious they wouldn't. But funny enough, we still have a lot of marketers in this world who aren't really living the digital space. Now, of course, we've got a whole host of people coming into um, the business world who know no other world. Of course, it's going to change over a generation. But right now, as we speak, the people who are leading our businesses, the people who are leading our big brands are what I'd call the lost generation. So they're not old enough, like myself, to have a 28, 26 uh, and 23 year old. And you know, there's one stage in my life if I wasn't on Snapchat, my uh, youngest, my daughter, uh, wouldn't be communicating with me because that's what she was doing at the time. And in some way, you get pulled in through your children. And if you have that modicum of curiosity, which I believe is a, a skill that every marketer needs to have, they need to be curious. If you had a, a, a modicum of curiosity, you get pulled in and, and, and you learn by doing. And actually, you know, the proof of the pudding is, is if you look across Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn, um, and please do follow me, uh, you'll see I have across those three uh, 330,000 followers. So I cannot be doing total rubbish because I've been working on it for, for nine years. So I think take part um, and get involved. But then if you look at this lost generation, which is neither the sort of the millennials uh, who have the whole digital skills built in from birth or um, people in their 50s who have millennials as kids, there's a lot of people still bluffing from what they read in Marketing Week, The Economist or whatever. I'm sure not in Google, but certainly in other businesses. And that frightens me because um, we're no longer talking about digital marketing. We are marketing in a digital world and companies like ours need to uh, really build that. So one of the things we've done uh, is we, uh, with all our marketers, we've done compulsory um, a training on digital, uh, mandatory training, which is you know very unusual for a company like Unilever to have anything that's like mandatory. Um, but that's right. a way we try to do it. Okay, well that's that's very interesting. Now I'd like to get Hannah to come in on that. Is it has that inspired a, a question from you? It has indeed. Um, how do we as marketers then tread that fine line between bravery and recklessness? Yeah, it's a really good question because it depends from your your. Um, uh, your viewpoint, what is bravery and what is recklessness. I'm sure uh, a lot of the time when I have uh, been working with people like Robin, um, <laughs> well, what Robin was trying to tell me was brave looked like reckless to me. So, uh, so I, you know, as often, uh, you know, people's uh, points of view are based on their viewpoint. But let me tell you from my viewpoint, I don't think companies can afford safe uh, any longer. And what do I mean by that? In this uh, world where we now are surrounded by, by media, so because of the uh, mobile phone, we now have three hours more media time a day, believe it or not, uh, here in the UK. And that's because you're now um, on your mobile um, in the tube, in a taxi, on a bus, and dare I say, during the working day. I mean, you couldn't, a couple of uh, decades ago, come to the office and put a television on your desk and watch it because your boss would notice that. But um, how many of you today at work have uh, been on Facebook or um, had a little uh, trip down YouTube um, or shopped on something on Amazon. And the truth of the matter is everyone is. It's the biggest destruction of efficiency in the workplace uh, because everyone has a little pocket remote control of their virtual uh, life with them. So I, I think in that cluttered world, um, the only way you can get noticed is by uh, taking risks. And I know it's easy to say, but it's kind of played off. Uh, well, it hasn't played. I've still got six weeks to go, so I could still mess it up. But I think that if you take risks, 
and make things happen um, because a lot of life is about making things happen. It's not talking about things, it's not analysing, that has to be done, but ultimately you have to make things happen. And if you take risks and and move and do enough of them, you get this learning and, and judgment. Where, so you take better risks and, and then you get rewarded with the feedback. And if you do enough of them, your failures are disguised by your successes. And I've got tons of failures, but luckily I've got more successes than I had failures. And if you're not failing, I don't think you're trying hard enough. So I think failing is that sort of experimenting and learning. The only failure you can have about failing is not learning from the failure. So you've got to look it in the eye and say, what, what went wrong there? And then, uh, and then do better. I didn't do all of that. So, Crystal, isn't it time now to ask your own question rather than ask Keith to ask the question of himself? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> so Sam Conniff has written a book recently called Be More Pirate and building off um, what you were last uh, talking about, if you don't feel that you're almost about to get fired, then you're not trying hard enough in terms of taking those risks and failing quickly. Um, but that has a flip side, which can be um, risk, uncertainty, emotional exposure, all of which together define vulnerability. So if we flip more towards the mental health side of taking those risks and constantly tr trying to prove um, the payoff of it, um, we know that mental health is you know, hugely important. According to the World Health Organization, one in four people experience mental health issues. Do, have you ever dealt with um, your own anxiety? And if so, how does it express itself? What helps you, especially as you think about going plural post Unilever? Is there anything that you're struggling with or have struggled with that you think other people would find interesting or comforting to hear about? Yes, and um, gosh, I, I, the answer is I think we've all um, had um, different levels of anxiety through your life. I think if you if you don't, you're a pretty insensitive person. So um, uh, I once had a coach who really helped me around this area of self-limiting beliefs. You know, uh, one of the things people talk about uh, this imposter syndrome um, and feeling that you're 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 not sort of up for the job. One of our brands, uh, Tresemme, is doing a piece of work exactly on this right now with the International Centre of Research on Women. Uh, and they found out that nine out of ten uh, women uh, suffer from uh, imposter syndrome at, uh, at work. And they haven't done the research on, on men, and I'm sure it's exactly the same. But uh, this is just a, a Tresemme sort of focus uh, through a lens uh, on women. And I think what's the most important thing is to understand yourself. And I had a coach um, back in the early 2000s who sort of talked to me about this self-limiting beliefs and recognizing when you've been triggered, when your self-limiting beliefs have been triggered. Um, and different people uh, have a different sensation when you've been triggered. Um, you know, some people have, you know, feel the hairs going up on the back of their neck, whatever. I get this feeling as if my sort of my, my uh, chest is filling up. Uh, yeah, I can just feel, you know, whatever. Uh, but if you know you've been triggered, uh, then you have a choice. Because your choice can then be, well, go let the whole emotional rock and roll go. I'm going to behave really badly here. I'm going to throw the toys out of my pram or whatever. Or you can say, whoops, I've been triggered. This is my issue, not the other people in the room. My issue, I've been triggered. Um, you know, count to 10 type thing. How am I going to react? And what helped me understand this was this self-limiting beliefs. Um, and the self-limiting beliefs... Uh, are you build up over the years, putting you with well-meaning parents and siblings and teachers. Um, I'll give you a perfect self-limiting belief. Uh, let's, no, actually, let me give you one that's really practical. Um, I was working in the US, I was moving to France, and I was terrified because I couldn't speak French. I'd failed my French O-level because when I was at school, you were either good at sciences or good at languages. And it was like, you know, 
No one told the Norwegians that. Everyone, Norwegians, everyone can speak two languages in Norway. But in the UK, you're good at sign language. So I did maths, physics, chemistry. So by definition, I couldn't do languages. Uh, and hence, I failed uh, all my languages. So I had this self-living belief that I could not speak French. And I was absolutely terrified about going to work in, in, in France. Well, surprise, surprise, I could speak French. I learned French and um, it all has a happy ending. But what it proved to me again is that there are constructs in your head that hold you back. And when people cross those, you get triggered and you behave badly. Um, and that undermines you as a person, undermines you as a leader, etc. So understanding your self-limiting beliefs, understanding how you're triggered can help. But these are real issues. And uh, you know, it's a trivial one talking about uh, French, but you're trying to give it as an example. These are real issues that we see across Unilever. We put a, a lot of emphasis uh, now in, in helping people around mental health. In fact, one of my great friends left Unilever and actually started a whole business just in this area, uh, Jeff McDonald. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Jeff because I worked with him. And I was going to say that Unilever has been an absolute leader on mental health in the workplace. And I've, I have a specific issue interest in it because I've got a bipolar diagnosis myself. It actually worked for me because it gives me a sort of manic creative fizz. Uh, so I'm... I, I hadn't noticed. <laughs> but but I think the, the whole question going forward uh, for your generation, neurodiversity and how all the ways in which we yeah. can harvest a much broader bandwidth of talent, I think is a hugely exciting thing. And I think Unilever, you, under you, Keith, has really led the way. So let me thank you for that because, you know, some of it doesn't get said. So over to you with your intellectually thoughtful <laughs> question. Um, Anna. Keith, looking back at your leadership journey um, that you've had so far, what stands out as your uh, most important learning experience and why? Oh, wow. Um, well, I think actually, funny enough, it's a little bit connected to what we've discussed. Um, you learn more from your mistakes than you do from your successes. And I'd had a reasonably charmed time where I had worked on brands that were going well and businesses going well. And uh, I had just uh, I'd run the UK business, which in Unilever is a great business. And then I was then put in charge of our global home care and laundry business, which was declining at the time. And the brief was to turn around the business. And I believed, yeah, OK, bish bosh, this will be done or whatever. Six months in, uh, nothing much had happened other than it carried on declining and tanking. And uh, I really thought, oh, my God, this is the end. You know, um, I actually <laughs> told Katie, my wife, uh, I said, uh, actually, I'm going to get fired. Uh, and um, we both started thinking about the kids schooling. Um, uh, no, we did, the whole thing. Uh, and I started going to headhunters. The good news is, actually, I managed to turn the business around before I managed to find another job. So I was actually clearly better at turning the business around than finding another job. But, but what I learned was actually the levers of turning a business around, as always, it's get the basics right. Um, and by the way, our laundry and home care business did turn around to being our fastest growing uh, division. And to this day, it still is our fastest growing division. Uh, and I left it nine years ago. But it was declining because we'd, we'd lost the plot. And what we went back to is... All these basic things like uh, understanding how consumers use your product, uh, understanding how good your product is. I know this sounds terribly basic, but in big businesses, you lose sight of those building blocks of uh, differentiation, success, etc. And so what I learned from that was always keep your eye um, on uh, the consumer, the user, etc. And understand what's going on. The reason why I go to the Consumer Electronics Show every year and you say, why does a soup and soap company like Unilever go there? Uh, it's because I want to know what's going on. I want to 
going to shape how habits change. Um, you know, tonight, you'll go home and you'll go to your bathroom and you'll run the hot water tap and you'll be a reasonable person. You'll let that water run warm. You won't storm out the bathroom. You'll let it run warm. Put a mobile phone in your hand and you turn into a monster. If an app doesn't load, a video doesn't play, you swipe straight past. And that level of intolerance is a behaviour change. And understanding those differences understands how you have to show up. How many marketers now show up on a mobile in a form which any consumer is going to actually engage in? Um, and certainly speaking to um, your bosses like uh, Matt Britton in, in Google, he points out um, his success and, and here's the rest. And a lot of people are doing the rest and a few people are doing success, you know, short videos, um, snap engagements. That's interesting. And I think it's something else you're interested in, Crystal, is the whole concept of unstereotyping. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's some, it's another initiative of yours, which maybe you, you want to ask Keith about. Yeah, I'd also like to say on the, I think on the neurodiversity point, Robin, you're absolutely correct. We know that diversity drives business results and neurodiversity I think is an area which is often overlooked but really fundamental to integrating into how we think about constructing high-performing teams. So Keith, on, on stereotyping, you launched the Unstereotype initiative in 2016 with the aim of eradicating stereotypes in advertising. How are you thinking about unstereotyping Unilever from within and can you give an example of something you've put in place or sponsored that's driven behaviour change? Um, well, yes, this is a, a, a topic I'm passionate about. Um, just for two seconds on the Unstereotype Alliance, purely because what's great about it is it, we started off in Unilever Unstereotype Advertising, but we've now taken it to the industry and also uh, UN Women, United Nations Women, uh, are, are now running it. So Unilever stepped back because there's no way we could get the industry engaged. And what's great is Google uh, is part of it, as indeed is Facebook and Twitter. Uh, but there again, so is WPP, Omnicom, Publicis, etc. And because it's run by UN Women, Procter & Gamble, uh, who would never be part of something if it was run by Unilever, are also, and J&J, and, and I can go on. And we're really seeing progress. But talk about that another day because that wasn't your question. I should have answered that to ask that question to myself at the beginning. <laughs> the question you asked was, "What are we doing in Unilever?" Well, I, I'm with you on the comment about diversity. I know you were talking about, but um, you know, you could take a load of very similar people and train them to to behave and think in a diverse manner. Or you could get diverse people and have a diversity of style and, uh, and thinking. Um, and, of course, gender diversity uh, is hugely important. But also we're doing a lot of work on uh, disabilities, as in disabilities, but different abilities. And uh, we've made a commitment to employ uh, 8,000 uh, people as our first sort of step into that area in the same sort of energy that we've put into gender. So uh, on our board, we are uh, now just about 50-50 uh, male-female. Uh, but the initiatives we're doing, I think, are trying to, on one side, enable people to engage uh, no matter what your uh, gender is. So, uh, for example, around the world, there are different levels of maternity. Um, and we've now put um, 16 weeks uh, maternity around the world, which in over half the countries is more than the legal limit. In the UK, uh, you can take f uh, 52 weeks um, if you've been uh, working for Unilever for more than three years, uh, 52 weeks paid uh, maternity. We've also put in paternity leave. And that, again, we've gone global with three weeks paternity leave uh, as our starting position. So I think there are policies you can put in place uh, which not only practically help, but also signal to the organisation you're serious about it. Um, what sort of things then have we actually uh, done to 
help support that. Well, um, what I love is the balance slate. Um, and what's the balance slate? The balance slate is saying, if I'm going to employ someone and I'm going to interview six people, push the problem back to the recruiters in HR and say, I want to see three men and three women. Because if you see five men and one woman, the chances that the woman gets the job is significantly uh, declined. And you should only pick the best person. So if you're going to see five men and one woman in an interview, the chances are you're going to hire a man. But if you see three men and three uh, three women, the chances are the best person's going to get it. And that could be a man or a woman. So I think the balanced slate should be something all uh, businesses do in recruitment because I think it's the way to get the boss, the recruiter, whatever, to have a fair chance at being able to employ equal numbers of men and women. Um, I think another thing we've done is around unbias and inclusiveness training. In fact, on the 9th and 10th of April next month, I'm taking my leadership team through uh, a day and a half of inclusiveness training. And um, it starts off, and they're being answered by now, a 360 questionnaire goes out. So you get personal feedback about your inclusiveness, your style, etc. Um, and then there's actually a day and a half training where uh, an expert sort of... And of course, it has things like unconscious bias, but it's more than that. It's trying to give uh, people models to understand how their behaviour, the shadow uh, that they have and, and how they engage. So I think if businesses take it seriously and have different layers uh, of, uh, of what they do. Um, I, I think you could un unlock the absolute um, uh, talent that, that uh, you've got around you rather than only sort of using part of the talent. You're listening to the Dog and Bone podcast from Propeller Group. If you like it, please share it around your network. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud or Acast or your usual podcast platform. And best of all, please post a review so we can climb the charts and be easier to find. Now back to our guests. It's interesting. That, that I wonder from your perspective in McDonald's, Hannah, what are McDonald's doing in the similar space? Because you've been there, what, for four years now? And it'd be interesting because you've done a lot of innovation. I wonder if you've done stuff in this area as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's different levels of um, policies that you can put in place. So absolutely looking at maternity and paternity um, leave as well. Um, but also understanding what you can affect on the day to day. Um, and I think from our level very much, it's the fact that we do a vast amount of advertising. We're responsible for what the norm looks like out in um, in the world of TV. And actually, we have a huge job in terms of just casting to make sure that actually what you're casting and what you're showing in terms of uh, big telly ads is actually representative of what modern Britain really looks like. So I think actually you can go right up to kind of policy level, but absolutely the fundamental and day-to-day -day, um, from what I can impact is, is absolutely what goes out on the floor. Because what was extraordinary in the work we did leading up to the Unstereotype Alliance, um, uh, and we looked across the world in different countries and across different advertising industries, 40% of women said they couldn't identify themselves yeah. in an ad. But ads are meant to engage people. Yeah. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I think to take it a step further from my role within Google in strategy and operations, it's a level of thoughtfulness. Any time that you put somebody up on stage in front of a large number of um, salespeople or employees, it's being thoughtful around are there people up on stage who look like a number of people within this as opposed to all looking exactly the same. Um, and it's going that sometimes it takes longer, sometimes it's more difficult logistically, and that's the same with getting a diverse slate. But it's really important for everybody to feel that they can see people in leadership who who look and sound like them. Yeah, well, I, I think that this, that's a really interesting part of the conversation. But as a, a rising talent, is there something you want to ask 
Keith, about what extra skills you might equip with yourself with in, in the 21st century, or do you feel you're, that you've got all the skills you need? <laughs> I don't think I have all the skills I need. Um, I would love, I mean, off-the-record conversation, um, what advice would you give marketing talent about becoming CMOs? Um, well, it's hardly off the record, uh, <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, what do I advise? It's not it's not for me to uh, hand out advice to to future CMOs because uh, I've done more than my fair share of bad things. But if I was to make some comments about um, what I believe in, and maybe that, some of that might might feel like some thoughts of advice. Um, so first, I'm a great believer in eighty percent of success is showing up. I think a lot of people miss opportunities uh, because they just aren't there taking part. You know, you've got to be in it to win it. And there are too many observers and, and not enough players. So I, I think um, I'd say to any, anyone is show up. Um, and um, uh, and uh, if you show up, um, you have a chance to be involved and take part, etc. That's the first thing. Uh, the second one I'd say is um, actually it's a quote from Bear Grylls. Actually, Bear Grylls, Bear Grylls before he <laughs> was Bear Grylls. So um, when I took over this laundry business and household care business, I'm telling you about uh, back in 2005, I had this uh, conference in trying to instill uh, these people who uh, were in a failing business to be inspired. I got this guy who was the youngest Brit to climb Everest, a guy called Bear Grylls. And he came to give this presentation. And on the stage, he was so nervous, you couldn't believe it. He was hyperventilating <gasps> as he was presenting. He thought, what do you get to the end of the presentation? <laughs> um, and he was showing photographs of these ladders going over creeks and uh, as he was climbing uh, Everest, etc. Um, you'd never guess, because he's very polished now, isn't he? But yeah. yeah he, he wasn't polished then. Um, <laughs> but he came out with this expression. It's amazing how you can remember expressions so many years later because they're so great. And we were asking him, like, how did you do it? You know, you're, yeah, how did you climb um, and he said, you know what it is? Um, the difference between ordinary and extraordinary is one little word, extra. And all I do is a little bit extra than what people do. And he said, that what's so surprising is if you do a little bit extra, it's, it's amazing how quickly you stand out, that most people are ordinary. So just push yourself to do that little bit extra and you'll stand out. So I think another thing is, is, is just do that little bit extra. And you don't have to do a lot more, a little bit extra, and it separates you uh, from uh, others uh, quite quickly. A third thought would be one I mentioned earlier, but uh, is this idea, if you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough. And and that's a great, I think, an empowering thought because it sort of justifies when you mess up because you think, oh, I've got to mess up. Well, at <laughs> least I must be trying. Um, so if you're not failing, you're not uh, trying hard. Um, and probably the most important to end is have fun. I think miserable people deliver miserable results. Um, and if you're having fun, I mean, look at Robin, a hugely successful man who's incredibly powerful in the advertising world, and he's clearly had fun and enjoyed himself. I'm sure not all the time, but he has been a person who has been uh, a real leader in this industry. And I would say he's a person that has fun um, and is a perfect example of, of uh, miserable people having miserable results. He, he's not a miserable person. Well, it's interesting. The Harvard Business Review just published a study which shows that organisations which have more fun are actually more successful. So that, that confirms the instinct. So thank you for that. Now then, Crystal, we prepared some questions before, but as we've been in this room for about half an hour, I'm sure you've bubbled up with some questions you didn't have when you walked into the room. Would you like to share one of those with Keith? Yeah, so something that you have referenced is the chief marketing officer being the champion of growth within the organisation. And I think to take that a step further, you can say that the chief marketing officer should also be the champion of the customer within the organisation. For a business like Unilever, 
How do you position the user versus the customer when you're talking to your teams, your marketing teams? Because they're quite different. Within my context, the user is the user of product. But often when we we say user, we conflate it with the customer who may be a Unilever, for example. So how do you make that distinction in your organisation and tailor accordingly? I, I understand. That. Yes, a very good question. Um, so uh, and what the words we use is, is customer and, and consumer, but it's exactly uh, the thought you have. Um, so you're actually right. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, what you see um, in your bathroom, uh, your bar of Dove uh, or whatever, isn't what we sell. What we actually sell, Unilever, is we sell pallets of product. And of course, what we're selling them to Tesco's uh, uh, or um, you know through Amazon, etc. Our whole business uh, is ultimately consumer centric because you know the consumer is right. Um, you know what? You know I said two and a half billion people use our product every day, but what we have to remember that is every single individual person. They aren't. They're all acting differently. So understanding the consumer is the most important thing we do. But equally, we need to understand our customer, the retailers, because we'll never get to the consumer if we don't get in, into it. So we actually have two very different approaches. We have uh, a marketing department, which is very much focused on the end consumer um, and understanding uh, the trends and uh, uh, understanding how our products are used and how we can improve them, and et cetera. And that, they're hugely focused there. And then we have uh, a sales department or customer development department, as we call it, uh, who, who focuses on the retailers. And what they're trying to understand is, you know, what do the retailers need? So actually, from a Unilever perspective, you know, one of the things that we might really, really want to do is grow a brand. Surprise, surprise. But actually, if we're growing that brand at the expense of another brand, a competitor brand in a retailer, for them, they're standing still. So what we have to learn is to a retailer, we have to work out how to grow the category. And so not only growing the brand is enough, we have to expand growth category because then the retailer is getting growth. The other thing we have to understand is no matter how much we fall in love with our own ideas, unless we can have big enough ideas that create footfall, which pull consumers into retailers' um, shops, um, we're not helping the retailers as well. So we end up with two strategies, which which aren't uh, contradictory, but are very different. One purely against attracting and building the business for retailers, and another one serving uh, consumers. But ultimately, you'll win if you serve the consumer well. I mean, at the end of the day, you would be a brave retailer if you weren't interested in having PG Tips, the number one tea, uh, Purcell, the number one washing powder or whatever, Magnum, because the consumers love them. And that's what we're going to lose. Um, you clearly have been a master of FMCG marketing. But if you were starting your career again today, would you choose to be in an FMCG company? Or would you rather be in a technology company or a service company? Um I think it'd be very hard uh, not to be attracted by by tech now because the amount of innovation um, and the speed the world is changing. You know, my, my, for instance, my, my son's uh, working in that area, so I suppose by by proof uh, of the next generation, uh, there it is. Having said that, and I would say this, wouldn't I? I don't think there's there is uh, more fun than creating products and and uh, experiences uh, for people. Now, of course, in the tech world, you you are doing that. I mean, you know. How many people haven't used Google Maps in the last day or so or Google search or how many people haven't checked on Twitter or, or Facebook? So, uh, of course, there's, there's that. But I kind of like the day to day service that a consumer goods give, business gives. It's harder to see in, in, in a developed world uh, here. But if you go to the developing countries and you see the role of our products that clean toilets or clean clothes or hair or et cetera, uh, they are transformational to people's quality of life. Life. But I'd say the same to you. Tomorrow morning, get up, 
don't have a shower, don't wash your hair uh, in tresemme, uh, don't put on uh, your uh, shawl deodorant, um, don't brush your teeth, um, don't in any way uh, enjoy um, your whole grooming uh, process. Drag on dirty clothes, eat breakfast off a dirty plate and go out and have a good day. So part of the humble products we uh, do is actually getting people ready for the day. What excites you and scares you about the future for marketers? I genuinely think this is the most exciting time to be in marketing. Uh, I do because uh, never has there been so much opportunity to prove the power of marketing. And I think the data, we're at the beginning of the data journey. Uh, and it's clear that it's, it's not working. We're actually making consumers fed up more than enjoying with uh, the way we're doing. You know, personalization right now irritates people more than, but it's, it'll get to a stage where we, we crack it. Uh, anyway. So I think what it excites me is all the tools and feedback loops, which mean that uh, marketers can understand better where consumers are and where they're going. So that'd be good. But then what frightens me is you can only spend your minute once. So if you're spending all your time worrying about that, and that's one of the reasons why I think the quality of advertising has dropped, because marketers have run around now trying to understand, A, digital marketing, but also uh, data-driven marketing and targeting all that. And because you only spend your minute once, if you're spending time on that, you're not spending your time um, um, you know, with um, advertising agencies trying to come up with great creative stuff, etc. And I think you can see, I mean, and now if you look at um, in the UK, TV advertising, now 50% of people say TV ads are annoying. If you only go back two decades, um, TV ads were enjoyed as much as the programming. Now, I think the programs actually got better as well, but TV advertising got a lot worse. And by the way, there's a lot of terrible digital advertising um, as well. So my fear is, is we get carried away on the whole data and digital journey at the expense of the craft of the product. Um, and... And don't get me wrong, you have to do that because if you don't, you end up being Kodak and Blockbusters and you're out of business. But now we've got over the hump and we sort of understood what we're doing, right? We'll get, get on and do that better. But let's get back to creating great ads that engage people, that emotionally touch people, uh, et cetera. And I'm, I'm fearful for marketing because they mess that up. You'll end up with a great bit of targeted rubbish. Yeah. So uh, within the context of beauty, business models are changing and this is enabling indie brands and influencers to break through in a way that perhaps they couldn't before. How would you suggest that large organisations learn from the successes that those more indie brands are having? That's a really good question. Uh, And by the way, a huge threat for uh, companies like Unilever and and, uh, Nestle and L'Oreal, etc. And the threat is as simple as this, is the old business model was to get a big successful brand, you have to have a big TV budget. Uh, In America, even worse, you had to go into the upfront buy, big TV budget. So you had a lot of money to put down. And if if you failed, then the company would fail. So I think big TV budget. You had a big relationship with retailers because not only do you have to get listed in a Tesco's or Walmart or whatever, you wanted to have it in the right place at the right shelf. You wanted a gondola end to have promotions and all that stuff. And that requires, again, a, a very professional sales force. You need access to capital. And then you probably needed a big factory and research and all that stuff. And all that has virtually disappeared in this technology revolution. So um, you can have do pay-as-you-go marketing. Um, you can, on a very reasonable way, very targeted um, social. You can do very targeted uh, search campaigns, etc. And you don't need that big budget up front. Equally, you don't need to have that big retailer. Um, you can do direct-to-consumer. Uh, you can sell on platforms like um, eBay and, and Amazon. So 
it enables that. And what it also enables, of course, is much more segmentation. So niche products can live and you don't need that massive factory to drive the scale to get the price down. And in that uh, environment, the barriers to entry these big businesses used to have have just crumbled. So what can businesses like Unilever do? Well, actually learn from it. Um, so either, um, if, you can't, if you can't beat them, join them. Either buy them. Uh, so, for instance, we bought Pucker Tea. Uh, there's a, a perfect example. We have PG Tips, the number one tea brand in the UK, but we also have Pucker Tea, uh, which we acquired. Or, you know, we've just launched uh, Love, Beauty and Planet, uh, which is you know, vegan, uh, recycled uh, plastic, cruelty-free, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And we know it's going to be a niche product um, uh, because we are going to compete with those So I think you have to become ambidextrous we are still going to grow through big billion dollar brands like the doves of this world. But equally, we are going to have a portfolio of small niche uh, brands targeting uh, different consumers. And when you ingest those companies, when you acquire them, are you also then changing your internal barriers to entry around what you expect from an ROI perspective, the kind of talent that you hire or, or acquire and the expectations of them in parallel? Uh, I hope the answer would be yes. Uh, And I think it probably is yes, but it uh, it is a a qualified yes because what we do initially is let them run independently. So uh, interestingly, we have, oh, I don't know how many now, we probably have about 16 founders still working in Unilever. Uh, running their their businesses. Dollar Shave Club is run by the guy who created Dollar Shave Club. It takes many years. So Ben & Jerry's is just being integrated now. Gosh, when did we buy Ben & Jerry's? Two decades ago. So we run them separately. The thing we, we do put in from the very beginning is our safety standards. And surprise, surprise, a lot of small entrepreneurial uh, brands do have different safety standards. Uh, and we won't compromise on safety. And we have a safety standard across the world. So, you know, when I say we, the brands I'm talking about, obviously brands were bought in the UK, but we buy brands in India and Africa, etc. So we, we have the Unilever safety standards. And then the other thing is financial control. So one of the things that will, will uh, frustrate initially is the financial control. That doesn't mean we change their financial measures and ROI. But, uh, and obviously we, we know how profitable the business was when we bought it because that's, we did part of that as the due diligence. But we will put in financial controls because the one thing you don't want to do when you buy a business is you don't want it to go bust. And that's then interesting to know where do you get your industry information from that keeps you wise with what's going on which particular source do you uh, yeah uh, I, i'd have to say um, my my primary source is twitter um i uh, i'm 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 fortunate enough to have you know, we have competitive analysis people so i get fed information but i do, uh, coming back to this 80% is showing up I, you know, I i get out there um i'm very externally oriented a lot of businesses big businesses get tied up in their in the internal uh, machine and what I mean by that, meetings and answering emails. Um, so when I go to a country to visit a, a company, the first thing I'll do day one is I'll go and visit consumers. I'll get someone to say we're going to visit consumers, and I'll go to the trade, go and see our, our customers, our retailers, um, and uh, and get a feel for what's going on before I go and visit the business. And I try and encourage us to do that within Unilever. Uh, one little interesting uh, anecdote on this I went to one country and I'd done that and then I arrived in the boardroom there was the CEO of our local company with his, his board all around him and he said well I hope you had a good time with the consumers and now the real work starts and you know puts up the, you know, the P&L so I said wow what a message to your board so seeing consumers and, and the, our customers our retailers that, that's not real work oh no, no I was just joking so, 
Well, I don't think I think you, you sent a powerful message to your board that, you know, I've just wasted a day. And uh, it, somehow it's it's the real work is sitting in a dark room with no consumers around us looking at, at slides about our, um, our financial affordance. Now, of course, that's important. But I think we lose the aim when you think the aim is to make the numbers look better or, or whatever. The numbers get better if you serve consumers and customers better. And we should spend more time in that area. So when you do your store visits or country visits um, to get local insights, how do you make sure that you don't get the sanitised version, that you don't get taken to the best stores and that this leader shadow that you cast doesn't totally um, colour the experience that you have? So, so, I, so Do you just go out on your own? Well, so you have to do both. So uh, I've realised that if you don't do both, you insult the local team and they, they feel that you're not trusting them and being divisive and sneaky, etc., but then equally, they're being divisive and, and sneaky, you know. So, you know, it, uh, we have big businesses in, in some of these markets. You know, we've been in, in, we're the biggest consumer business by a long way in India. Uh, we've been there since the 1800s. When you're traveling from the airport to the office, you see a ton of posters. And you know those posters have been bought because you've come. They're not, they've, they've literally been bought, so I see them on the way to the office. Uh, and then when you go to these stores, I mean, they are perfect. They are loaded with product. There's probably a year's worth of stock in that product, in that store. Uh, because that's, that's you know, the, the guy, the sales guy, has got the relationship with, good, he's got a relationship with the with the store manager, uh, would have said, no, this isn't perfect. You know, I'm going to kill you. Or, or, you know, make it perfect and I get, I'll throw in a free pallet of product or whatever. Anyway, so you know that's gone on. You know that's gone on. But at least go, speak to the trade, and you get some sort of feel and you see what's going on, etc. But don't for, for a second suggest that what you're seeing is reality. Mm-hmm. And then what you have to do is you have to then uh, sneak out the hotel and actually go and see some real stores. Mm-hmm. But you have to go far enough away from the hotel <laughs> because they know. I mean, yeah, they know exactly, yeah. Um, and one of the things is, is um, uh, uh, what I also love is wherever you go, um, you find Unilever products. So you find Unilever products in your hotel room. And you absolutely know that if you knocked on the next door room and went into that hotel room, the Unilever products would not be there. They have literally been put in your room. <laughs> so then my last question is, in your polished, suave, everything perfect, what was the most sort of embarrassing moment, the sort of most awkward moment in your career that you'd like to confess to? Wow. Um, well, I wouldn't say polished. Oh, gosh, got too many to mention. But how many can I admit with so many people listening? Uh, so let, let me get one I can remember. I had just arrived in America. Um, yeah, it's interesting. You're talking about, about uh, what industries. Um, similarly, I mean, if I was now, I'd want to go and work in China. Uh, but back in the 80s, as a marketer, going to go and work in America was the place to go and learn about marketing. And I arrived in America and I'd just been uh, in New York at one of those big advertising meetings and came down and um, you know, a little bit nervous about how everything works. And I need to get the car back to the office. And there was a line of black um, Lincolns and whatever cars uh, with names like, you know, Jerkowitz and Jodel in, in the window and I was looking for my name and I couldn't find it and I got to the end car and there was no name on it so I tapped on the window and the window went down and I said weed and he said buying or selling Um, and that felt rather (laughs) awkward. (laughs) Well Keith that's um, I've learned a lot from the last uh, 40 minutes just listening to you Um, so thank you for sharing all those thoughts thank you Crystal thank you Hannah the one thing I, I pick out of all the things that you said is that for me going forward, is this thought brands can't afford 
uh, to be safe anymore. And that's something which I think is really relevant. And Unilever has been a great leader in that. So I know you will be leading in all sorts of other ways. But thank you for sharing your wisdom with us this afternoon. Well, thank you for being uh, here. And uh, I very much enjoyed it. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you, Crystal. Uh, thank you, Robin. Thanks for joining us on The Dog and Bone. Please subscribe to the podcast. And if you have any questions or suggestions, do get in touch via our website, dogandbone.dog. Or send us an email at woof at dogandbone.dog.